0: Thank you, Craig and crew, for leading. And uh, we do know it may sound a little staticky outside on the radio. Thank you for your patience as we try to work through that. And uh, we are just glad that we're here today. Before we uh, have Brother John come up, I'm going to do our pastoral prayer. So we usually do, if you have your bulletin with you, we've been praying through a church a week in our uh, Baptist Association. This week we're praying for First Baptist Church of Dearborn, Missouri. Ironically, this is where John's daughter, uh, Autumn, teaches. That was not planned. This has literally been week by week. I just It dawned on us when we did this this morning. Uh, Dearborn is North Platte School District, of course. Many of you are familiar where that's at. Uh, the church there has struggled for a number of years, um, but they continue to, st- to hang on and ask the pastor this week, the so, said, Pastor, how can we pray for you? What can we pray as a church for your church? And I'm just going to read what he said over Facebook, and this is how he said. He said, please pray for us that the glory of God And all his divine attributes would be revealed through the preaching of his word, and that we would come to a more clear knowledge and a need as a congregation for what Jesus has done for us, and that we would grow in a greater appreciation of that every day. That's the prayer for the congregation, and that's a prayer that all of us have, especially for this church as we go forward, that we would remember who God is, we'd know what he's done for us, and we would celebrate that as often as we can. And uh, we will pray for the work of the gospel there uh, as God goes through and works in Little Dearborn. We, we used to compete against them when I was at Plattsburgh, and they always beat us in a lot of sports. So uh, there's some old rivalries there, but we pray, we pray even for those that beat us, right? Amen. God is good. Let's pray together, and then I'll have Brother John come up. I'll introduce him, and then John will be free to preach as he does. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. For our time, thank you, Lord, that we can gather in these days. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient. We thank you that your 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 work is finished once and for all in your Son. There's not something else we have to add to it. Your fingers weren't crossed, Lord, when your Son was on the cross, Lord. You don't weren't just uh, faking us out, Lord. We can ex- we can exhale, Father, because the work has been done, Father. It doesn't relieve us from seeking holiness or being sanctified or growing in Christ or any of those things. Certainly. But, Lord, our salvation has once and for all been nailed to that cross and been uh, justified through your faith, through faith, Father, in your Son. Thank you so much. Lord, we do pray for our sister church, First Baptist Church of Dearborn, Missouri, Father, that they would come to know you better, that through the preaching and teaching of the Word, that they would relish and and just be rejuvenated in the truths of who you are. Father, in this world that is so fleeting and so uh, quick and so easy to forget, what we have in store for those of us who know Christ. That, Lord, this is not our home. You called us here, but Lord, you've, you've given us someday a perfect body, a perfect place, a perfect spirit, a perfect fellowship, and all those things we know from Scripture. Thank you so much. Father, I especially pray for evangelism and discipleship that you grow people in Christ, and they may reach people for Christ as they reach out in their neighborhoods and their area. Father, we pray the same for our church as well. As our brother comes, Lord, may the word be preached. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. As he comes up here, I'm going to go ahead and give his introduction. Uh, Many of you know Brother John, or should I say more formally, Reverend John Moody. Uh, John, if you want to go ahead and come on up, that's fine. Uh, John, and I've shared, it's, we usually, a couple side notes, I am here today, we're not on vacation anywhere. It's been a while since we've done this, but it's good for you to hear another voice. Uh, Not because I can't teach the Word of God, Uh, I can. But it's good because we have other men in our church who can as well. It's good for you to hear different perspectives. Not that we have changing truth. The truth is the same. But God will use another brother to speak to you in a way that perhaps I can't. And God will do that. So thank God for that. Second thing is, uh, John was my pastor for a season. This is really going to date us 14 years ago. Woo! You were a little younger, and I was definitely younger. Uh, I love you. I'm just kidding. And John now works. uh, He's the head of security at... uh, uh, a place around our neck of the woods and does a great job with that. John has served with his his uh, wife, Teresa, who you know well, uh, in uh, the foreign fields of the International Mission Board, and they had great news this week. I hope I don't mind sharing this. Uh, Autumn, their daughter, who I knew, Autumn, when she was a little teenager, got engaged to Sam, I believe. Is that correct? Did I get the name right? Who's a K-State fan, so uh, he's already good, guys. He's good in our family. I've mentioned that twice. I'm sorry but uh, we love him. Congrats, guys. But more so, John has a passion for sharing the Word of God, and that's what it's about. He leads a Sunday school class here. They've been with us now, John and Teresa have, going on six years. That's hard to believe. Uh, Just a few months after I showed up, they joined our church, and so we are immensely blessed. John, after you're done, I do have a present for you. Can I go ahead and spoil what it is? Sure. Sure. We didn't get John a check, which is customary for a guest preacher. We got him. These are these are first edition uh, uh, of Hodge's Systematic Theology from 1946. Oh, wow. yeah. So you're gonna enjoy some heavy reading, and yeah, uh, uh, John loves books, so this mm-hmm. is right up his alley. So it's in a. You can't see this outside, but if you're online, you can. He was gonna preach for us on uh, Valentine's Day, that's why we gave him the pink bag, but <laughs> uh, he gets it in a pink manly bag. Love you, John. And, um, brother, let me pray for you, and I'm going to release you, and we're excited to hear from you. Father, thank you so much for our time. Lord, I thank you for Brother John Moody, who, uh, for so many years, is just the stability of the gospel in his life and ministry. We rejoice at their family news, and we rejoice at how you've worked in their lives so much. Father, speak through him now, we pray. May our ears be open. And Lord, if any, and the sound of his voice, whether it's online or here, physically, outside or inside, have not yet come to Christ, may this be the day, the day of salvation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brother, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, church.
1: Can you hear me outside, I guess? Is there a honk? Sound like a 78 Pinto, don't it? <laughs> well, we're going to be in Second Corinthians uh, chapter ten. We're gonna be looking at verses one and six, so if you wanna go ahead and turn turn there. Always gotta have this accessory table to put all of my equipment. I was was getting ready this morning and of course you know it's a little bit different when you're when you're uh, gonna be behind the pulpit. I had to get everything ready and Teresa said, Do you really need all of that stuff? And I said, Yeah, that's like the preacher's kit. I had the had my Bible, the sermon, I had my cough drops, I had a chapstick and then, of course, nose spray. So I mean, <laughs> and uh, that's that's the kit you have to have. Well, let me just let me just say thank you to uh, Pastor Darren. One thing that I appreciate about Pastor Darren is that is he does such a good job of uh, protecting this this pulpit. Um, ultimately, he knows that what is preached behind this pulpit that he bears a great responsibility before the Lord on that. And yet, at the same time, he gives people the opportunity to hear from other preachers, uh, whether it be me or whether it be our, our seminary students. So um, and just what a privilege. I mean, I, whether it be Sunday school, whether it be behind this pulpit, really when the, the impact and just the privilege that God gives us to even share his word, it's can be pretty overwhelming. And I hope I never lose that, that awe in, in, in who God is and, and what he allows us to do and share his word. Um, well, let's pray with me, and then, and then we're going to look at this scripture. Well, Father, I do thank you for, Lord, first of all, just the opportunity um, just to share your word. Um, God, you, you need nothing um, from us. But yet, Lord, in your divine sovereignty and your divine plan, uh, you, you sought out and you, you made it happen, a relationship with you. Lord, you've called us to be people of your kingdom and you use us to bring other people into that uh, kingdom. And, uh, Lord, just help us to reflect on that. And, and, Lord, as the scriptures we're going to look at this morning, um, Lord, just so many blessings, so many privileges. And, um, and, Lord, as we look at this terminology that Paul speaks about, about warfare and battles and the fight, Lord, I just pray that that would not intimidate us. Um, but Lord, because we know that we follow a... a victorious king, um, and, that, and that you're with us, and you're with us in the battles and the struggles of life, and, and Lord, there's coming a day when all this will will come to an end and we'll truly live for eternity in, uh, in eternal victory in your eternal kingdom, and God, I just pray that we would be encouraged, I pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds to reality um, of, the, of the Christian life, of, of this battle in that sense, and um, and then God, that you would equip us for for every good work, and equip us for even every battle in this spiritual warfare. And we we pray all this in in Jesus' name. Well, not long ago, I I ran across a quote by uh, a preacher named John Piper. He's a well-known pastor and theologian from from Minnesota. And not only was this quote a timeless quote, it was was also a biblical uh, truth uh, for all men for all times. And Piper said this, he says, life is war, that's not all it is, but it's always that. Life is war, that's not all it is, but it's always that. And we, we call this type of truth an inconvenient truth. Uh, in fact, there are certain truths in, in life uh, that we would rather not face, it. we would rather not um, confront because they're inconvenient. We just don't like them. They're real, they're factual, they're true, but they're inconvenient. And when we see truth, when we see reality um, in that light, by default and out of necessity, we have to create a false reality. We have to create something that's a little more convenient for our minds. Just a common day illustration, when we become sick, in a lot of circumstances. We wake up, we don't feel too good. As the day progresses or the days progress, we become more and more sick. The symptoms become more and more serious. We know we should go see the doctor. Others in our family are saying you should go see the doctor. but For some reason, we don't. And, and so we ask the question, why do we do that? And we've probably all done that. We've probably waited too long uh, in light of, of all the evidence. Um, we know from the evidence you know that, that it's wrong and, but we're retreating to that safe spot in our mind, that spot in our mind that we've created that says, you know what, it, things aren't really as bad uh, as, they, as they seem. And this safe spot, now remember, it's not reality. It's not the, the reality of your sickness. It was, it was created for one purpose, and that's self-preservation. That's what we do. We, we retreat to these safe spots for, for self-preservation, even though that's the very thing that's going to destroy us many Christians have, have retreated to this safe spot that's been created and mind about the Christian life. It's so, it's so easy to we re, We have refused to acknowledge in many cases that this life, this life that we live as a follower of Christ, by its very nature, by its very design, is a life of war. That's, that's the reality. And so this morning I want to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where the Apostle Paul is going to discuss some of this reality. He, he's actually dealing with a group of false teachers who have infiltrated um, the Corinthian church. And these false teachers were teaching ideas and doctrines contrary to the word of God. And, and these ideologies, the, these opinions, they, they sounded good. They appeared godly, but it wasn't reality. It, it wasn't the truth of the gospel. And in Paul's attempt to wake up the church to say, say, church, it's time to wait? He wants them to understand that, that there's a battle, that there's a battle for truth that's worth fighting. And it's not uh, just enough to, uh, in our situation to just join the battle. We have to know, we have to be equipped on what weapons to use, what weapons not to use, because this really is the Lord's battle. Certain things work, certain things don't, and Paul's going to speak about that as well. And, and still today, we are in a, a spiritual war. This is this is warfare with spiritual enemies that require spiritual weapons. And if we get this wrong, if, if we get this foundational truth wrong, then our approach and the way we look at Christianity in general is, is going to be wrong. If we get this wrong, all of the Christian life is going to be wrong. So as, as Darren likes to say, the big idea is, is simple is the Christian life is war. As Piper said, it may be a lot of things. A lot of other things, but it is war. I think when we begin to understand the, the concept of this Christian warfare, then our biblical worldview starts to make more sense. It really does. We begin to realize that, yes, on, on the one hand, we are the, the sheep of his pastor, but on the other hand, we're the, the soldier on his, on his battleground. And I want to look at Paul's response to this spiritual warfare, starting in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging more according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take thought and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So in the passage this morning, we find that Paul is disturbed about a a couple of things. First of all, false teachers are leading believers astray, filling their minds with false doctrines and, and nonsense, things contrary to the word of God. And second of all, they're, they're spreading rumors about Paul that is designed to discredit um, his authority. And ultimately, when you discredit his authority as an apostle, then you're discrediting his teachings in general. And, and, and verse 1, don't miss the significance of Paul's approach by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, I, I treat you, I, I, I beg of you. Paul is already living out, he's displaying A lesson about spiritual warfare. From from the very beginning, he's displaying the fruits of the Holy Spirit, responding with a godly approach to even those who oppose him. And Really, this should be the attitude of any Christian who is about to defend or share biblical truth. Before we open our mouth, post our thoughts on Facebook, we, we need to ask ourselves a couple of things. First of all, is our motivation really about truth? Now, we're Christians. You would think that that would be a given. But oftentimes, it's not really about our zeal for truth. Do we have a heart like Paul that says, I, I beg you, I, I entreat you? Do we have a sincere desire for truth to prevail, or is it more to win an argument? Paul, Paul could care less really about his reputation. That's, that's not what it was about. It was about truth. It was about the gospel. And you, you've heard it said that many times we can, we can win the argument but lose the person. I mean, we do have truth on our side. So, so how do we approach lost people? How do we approach a, a brother who perhaps has fallen? Again, we can go to truth, and in our whole presentation, we can win the argument with, with the facts and reality. But again, look at Paul's approach. He's, he's meek, he's, he's gentle. And the second thing, are we displaying the character of Christ in that encounter, his fruits? Galatians 5.20, the love, joy, peace. All those fruits of the Holy Spirit. This meekness and gentleness are the fruits of Christ. Or are we doing it with flesh, gossip, anger, slander? Probably we all have had times where we could look back on our Facebook and had to go back and delete it. Because even though we had a a zeal for truth, whether it be whatever hot topic in our society today, in our zeal for truth, we find out and we realize that we're just Really, about more about winning the argument, and Paul says that's not. It's about winning people to truth, and he's going to go on and, exactly how that happens here uh, in just a moment. Now that said, I, I don't think we need to misinterpret Paul's approach as a contradiction to proclaiming truth with with boldness and authority. Paul was was probably one of the boldest examples of a Christian. Uh, witness anywhere, anywhere in the scripture. Again, he didn't care what men thought about him outside of what drew men to Christ, outside of the truth of Christ. In response to these false allegations, Paul introduces himself this way. He says, it's me, Paul, humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. You see that the false teachers were trying to discredit Paul by portraying him as somewhat of a hypocrite. Saying, "Yeah, we know Paul, the one who talks so bold in his letters, but you get the guy in the room with us, face to face, and he's not so courageous." Probably what's more heartbreaking to Paul is that some of the Corinthian Christians. And probably what's most heartbreaking to many pastors today is it was those whom he dearly loved were starting to believe these lies about his motivation about his about his ministry they'd also mistaken Paul's meekness and and gentleness as a lack of courage paul says that's not the case at all he warns them in fact if i need to if this isn't changed if you don't shape up you'll face the consequences on his next visit. Now Paul had authority from the Lord and I don't fully understand the, all the context of that authority. But but Paul did not want to be harsh with his with his sheep, with those that he was the under shepherd over. He wanted to love them, he wanted but again he says there's times where outside of the truth I have to do what the Lord's called me to do and and then just wrap up this approach with with the way he ends that that peace. He displays a sign of true pastoral leadership when he says, I, I can and I will be this way. He says, I, I beg you, may I, may I not have to be this way. And it was so different from the false teachers of his days who, who lorded this authority over the church. And, and Paul went on to say it, that these allegations were also coming from some who were claiming that he was walking according to the flesh. Again, just really another attack on his integrity and authority. And in verse three, he responds like this. He says, Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Now, in this in this one statement, Paul has just introduced his approach, his strategy, and his understanding of the Christian life. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, I believe most Christian in Paul's day, and probably us today as well, that we have a basic concept, a basic grasp on flesh versus the, the spiritual. Yes, we live in a physical body. We live in a physical realm here on earth. We're not spirits floating around, At least most of us aren't. He says, no, there's a physical sense, but there's also a, a spiritual sense. We, we understand that, but now Paul comes along, and he introduces a concept that perhaps we don't fully understand. This, this concept, this idea that the Christian is somehow part of waging a war. How often do we hear the invitation to, to follow Christ as an invitation to war? Yeah, not, not, not often. It's not the best recruitment material, I guess you could say. And, and listen to how uh, Paul describes some of his own battles. And you don't have to turn there, but in the very next chapter in Second Corinthians 11, he he talks about some of his battles, and and I'm, I'll paraphrase some of this. But he says, "I've been in prison, I've been flogged severely, been exposed to death over and over. Five times I received thirty-nine lashes from the Jews. I've been beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked three times. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I'm always on the move. I'm in the danger from rivers." Danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles. I'm in danger in the city, in the country, at the sea, false believers. He said, I've gone without sleep. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. I've been cold and naked. And then on top of all of that, he says, then I have a concern for the churches. So Paul knew what he was speaking about when he was speaking about spiritual warfare. Now, Paul was a, a frontier-type missionary. He was an apostle, and no doubt he was a prime target um, of the enemy. But nonetheless, the things that we face, it may not be this severe, but it's the same battle. It's the same war. And I think this war concept is a little bit difficult perhaps um, to grasp in the American church culture, um, especially when so many preachers are recruiting others with their "best life now" campaigns, It really that really is true. Best life now campaigns grow a lot of churches, but they create a lot of casualties because it's not reality. It's it's not reality on this 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 battlefield because warfare. Uh, Anything short of warfare reality just doesn't work in the Christian life. The, the best life now uh, theology just doesn't work. You choose any two men in the physical sense, choose any two men, put them on a real battlefield. You convince the one that he's about to encounter his best life now, and you convince the second one that he's about to encounter a deadly enemy. Who do you think is going to prepare? Who do you think is going to be ready and win that battle? what Paul is speaking about. He says, prepare for this battle, and here's how you do it. Best life theology did not start with Joel at all. Paul even dealt with this in the first century. 2 Timothy 4.10 talks about about a man who somewhat was looking for his best life now. Got it wrong. There's a man named Demas, and it says, because he loved the world, he forsook Paul and turned back. When the testing came, the battles started raging, he left. It wasn't, wasn't the life that he, that he wanted. Church, I think if we don't understand this warfare that Paul is speaking about, what happens when we find ourselves in the battle, having to choose between the love of God and the love of this world? Are, are we equipped, are we prepared to fight those kind of battles? How do do you fight the battle? The answer is always the gospel. It's it's always the gospel from from beginning to end. And if we're honest, when we read the scripture, cases like Demas can perplex us. I mean, what happened to Demas? How can you be discipled by one of the greatest disciple makers of all time and then run in the heat of the battle? That's a pretty perplexing question, or even more perplexing, how did Judas set under the teachings of Jesus for three years, God in the flesh, and forsake him with a kiss? Those, those things are, are perplexing, and they're not new questions. Many Christians throughout history have thought deeply about these things. How, how can this be? Now, some have concluded, well, perhaps uh, these men were saved, and they must have lost their salvation. How can you walk along with Paul and walk with Jesus and not be saved? So they must have been saved and, and lost their salvation. Well, I don't think that's correct at all, but it is a mindset and it and it's a it's a mindset that that kind of indicates a deeper a deeper problem of the way we look at the gospel. The, the problem with those kind of conclusions is that it distorts the true gospel. It causes us to look away from from Christ, away from the gospel, and look inward to determine how can we keep from becoming a Demas? How can we keep from becoming a Judas? And and what happens at that moment is that we enter into a battle that the Lord isn't part of. He's not part of that battle. So then we begin waging war according to the flesh. We ask ourselves, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to remain saved? Save? What must I do to not become a, a Demas or a Judas? And maybe the question needs to change. Maybe the question isn't whether you can lose your salvation. The question is, have, have I been saved by a gospel that saves eternally? That's the question. Have I been saved by a gospel that saves eternally? A gospel that sustains me, a gospel that is training and, and equipping me for the good fight. A gospel that ins- assures that I will endure to the end. And if that's not the case, then we've believed a different gospel than the one Paul preached. Galatians 1, Paul describes this very issue. In Galatians, and the the the, the issues that he was dealing with in, in the book of Galatians and also here in Corinthians, a lot of them, it's always the gospel. If you get the gospel wrong, you get it all wrong. And so, again, this very thing, Paul describes this issue that, about a gospel that, that didn't save, that couldn't save, a so-called gospel that was based on the merits of men versus the merits of, and the grace of, of Christ. Verse 6 of Galatians 1 Paul says, I am amazed how quickly you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel. Remember, Paul is speaking to saved people, those who were, it says, called by the grace of Christ. And look how he's, he's still treating the gospel. Paul's talking to saved people, yet he still treats the gospel, the true gospel, as a current need. It's something worth fighting for. It's something worth dying for. You see, many of us initially learned about the gospel in terms of that initial, just that coming to Christ. The moment of being saved, being born again. And that's the only perspective we have on it. And therefore, many Christians come to Christ through the gospel, are saved, and then they go through the rest of their Christian life with the gospel, kind of in the rearview mirror. And the only time the gospel is in one sense in their mind, um, I guess, uh, useful in one sense. When you look at it just in the terms of bringing people to Christ, the only time you think about it is when you're sharing the gospel to bring somebody to Christ. And Paul says that's not true at all. The gospel was never intended to bring you to Christ and then leave you to yourself to become more like Christ. You see, that's what happened with, um, with, with some who... We talked about this last night who have shipwrecked their faith or what Paul was talking about in Galatians, perhaps true born-again believers who come to Christ by grace, but yet then they try to live out the Christian life in their own strength. But the same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that will sustain you. It's by God's grace through faith that you're saved and it's by God's grace through faith that you will endure. And here's Paul's warning. Imagine coming to Christ... Through the gospel, his mercy, his his grace, you've had new life breathed into your, your soul, and you're willing to face any battle that comes so long as Christ is with you. But something happens over time. You become apathetic. You begin to hear these other opinions, these other ideologies. You see other people's strategies of living the Christian life. And little by little, it's very subtle and it's very dangerous, Little by little, our trust, our hope, our reliance on God's grace begins to fade. And when that happens, at least we think in our mind that we really don't need prayer. We really don't need the Word of God, the shield of faith. We really don't need these weapons of warfare that Paul says has godly power, divine power. Paul says that's not the way to fight these battles. Verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Weapons not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So, so Paul, what weapons are you talking about here? Well, in Second Corinthians... Chapter 6, he speaks about weapons of righteousness. And really, any gift that God has given to the body of Christ or to you as an individual, by its very nature, in one sense, is a weapon of righteousness. It's a weapon with divine power. So there's a lot of things that you could study out in, in, that, in that term. But this morning, I just want to, for the sake of time, just reference a passage that most of us are familiar with in, in Ephesians 6. And there we find that Paul is saying, in order to stand, uh, in order to stand against the devil, put on the full armor of God. And you'll see that, especially in this war terminology, with the the opposition, spiritual opposition, stand firm, stand firm. It's it's all about standing. In other words, not being knocked over and becoming a casualty. So he says, in order to stand, um, you must put on the full armor of God. And regardless who we think that we're fighting against. In the flesh, whether that be the atheist, perhaps abortionist, perhaps you think that you're fighting against politicians, the reality is that our fight is not against them. Not in that, not in that sense. It's, Paul says it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers of darkness and other spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, it's, it's a battle going on in a place that we cannot see, but by faith we understand it, and by faith We appropriate the way that God intends us to win this battle. And anything short of that will produce casualties. And then he goes on in verses 14 through 18, and I'm just going to give the list of of the weapons and the armor. He talks about if you're going to stand firm, you have to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation. Soar of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we typically and sometimes often leave out verse 18, which is to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. These are not optional, Not, not for victory in this battle. These are essential in order to stand against the devil. There's a divine power, God's power. And you know what? We don't fully understand what all that means. But we know there's divine power in these, in these weapons needed to win the battle that we've been called to. And then we have to ask ourselves, how often are we, are we guilty? And we, we all are. How often are we guilty of fighting the battle in our own strength? One image that comes to mind is that it's like we're trying to push down the walls of Jericho in our own strength, and our own power. And the Lord says that will not work. Think about some of this armor. I'll just take three of the, the examples, the shield of faith. Like faith, the word of God and prayer. These are pieces of armor, weapons in that sense, that's mentioned throughout Scripture. But, but look how they're, they're mentioned in Scripture. It's always in the context of growth, sanctification, proficiency, how to use them, when to use them. I think sometimes we've reduced Ephesians 6, is just a mental exercise that we go through, that we mentally just go through, okay, we're putting on this and this and this and this. And from the standpoint of of doing that in the sense of being aware and always remembering what's at your disposal in this battle, that's fine. But the mental exercise is not sufficient. That's not what that scripture means at all. Ephesians 6 is not that mental formula just for the battle. These are weapons to be trained with on a daily basis to become proficient in this battle. What Ephesians 6 is telling us is, is we're being taught, we're being equipped how to fight the battle. Faith, prayer, all of this, we become more proficient in being trained in righteousness by actually, by actually using these, these armors. And in that learning process, we begin to see the divine power, this godly power that Paul speaks about, working through our faith, working through the Word of God, working through prayer. And the more we see this as we grow in Christ, the more we understand how useless the weapons of the flesh really are. It's not really hard to imagine why Christians want to avoid the battle. think about this, warfare and that kind of talk. It's a subject that brings to mind thoughts of suffering, destruction, casualties, death. War is is costly, so so naturally we prefer a different reality than what Paul's speaking about. If we're not careful, we'll create our own reality to our dismay. Think about this. Acts 11 says the disciples of Christ were first called Christians at Antioch. I think that's a term we're pretty comfortable with, at least in America. That that title, that name, doesn't bring a lot of persecution, anything like that. It does in some places in the world. There's also other terms that I don't believe that we we have trouble with. Uh, believers, children of God, sheep. That's a good one. Saints. That's what my wife likes to refer to me as. Such a saint. Jeez. And here's why I think we're okay with that. These, these are true. All of these are true titles for us. But they also give us kind of this nice mental image. But I'm not so sure that we really like the image of a soldier. Paul was talking to Timothy, actually in 2 Timothy. and He said, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. Now, if we were honest, who, who has that scripture memorized? Or hanging on their rearview mirror or posted on their refrigerator? Hardship? This, this soldier talk? I think we just prefer to be the sheep. And think about the sheep, just dumb and clueless. They eat all day, lay around in a pasture, watching the wind blow through the grass. And then Paul comes along, and he just messes up this utopic image of what the Christian really is. I don't think we, we don't like the, the image of a soldier because we know it's costly. We know enough about warfare, even though we've, if we've never been to war, We've seen enough, we know enough, we've heard enough stories, but something about being a soldier is difficult. But there's something more costly than being a soldier. And it's being a soldier who goes AWOL. If you're not familiar with that term, AWOL means absent without leave. It means you've just kind of shirked the duty without permission, and you no longer want to be part. Of the battle. World War II was probably one of the costliest wars that America has seen with over 400,000 plus soldiers who were killed in that. But imagine the cost if the majority of those soldiers had won AWOL. As costly as that was, imagine what it would have been like if everyone had deserted at those crucial times of battle. Soldiers become the best they can be when they understand what's at stake, what what they're fighting for. In American history, soldiers weren't only given the most proficient weapons of their day, same as today, but they understood why they were fighting. It was for freedom. It was for liberty. It was for our nation. It was for the protection of our people. You can have an entire platoon of the most able-bodied men equipped with the, the best weapons And it's all useless unless you have, if they have no motivation to prepare, to train and become proficient with those weapons. If they don't understand what's at stake, why would they suffer the hardships of battle? It wouldn't make sense. But a good soldier understands what has to be destroyed in order to preserve what's at stake. So Paul is fixing to tell us, As a soldier, in this warfare, in this battle, what needs to be destroyed for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of truth, for the sake of light in the darkness? Listen to what he says needs to be destroyed in verses 4 and 5. He says you have these weapons with divine godly power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments. And the third thing is to destroy every... Lofty, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Simply stated, Paul is speaking about using divine weapons to destroy these strongholds. Your your translation may say fortresses, where arguments and opinions contrary to the Word of God has taken a defensive route. And then he goes on to tell us where these fortresses are built. They're built in the minds, and these my mi- and these. Most of the time he's talking in the context of lost people. But Christians can develop these fortresses as well. There's a truth that perhaps like we talked about, just even the concept of being a soldier, we can build a fortress against that truth in our own minds, a place that we retreat to when that truth comes to us. No, it's more convenient to go back to, uh, no, this is the way we see it. This is what we believe. It all starts in the mind. I think it would help us to understand if... Uh, What he meant by strongholds and and the way the Corinthians would have understood it. If you understand that in their city, they had what they call an Acropolis, which was like a fortress or a stronghold. It was on a mountain near the city. It was this fortified place. It was a place of defense where the residents of the city could retreat in case of attack. So it was the Corinthian safe spot. It was a place of retreat. When the enemy came, they retreated back in to that fortress, to that, to that stronghold. So the Corinthians would know when he was talking about in that context. And in the context of Scripture this morning, these fortresses are, are places that have been constructed in the minds of unbelievers, a place where they can retreat, a place that is safe from any truth that violates their conscience. That's what's going on here. That's what Paul is speaking about. Remember, it's also a place of false reality, it's a place where deception dwells, a place where arguments and opinions contrary to the Word of God take place. And it's important to know this because it gives you insight to what's going on in our world, why people believe what they do. Let me just give an illustration. I'm going to use abortion, for example. And let me just say this. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. Unfortunately, there may be somebody listening who's been through this, caused a lot of suffering. But I use this as an example this morning because it is one of those ideologies in our society today that is bringing the most conflict, I guess you could say, So we're using that as an example. We engage in this battle for truth concerning what the Bible says about the unborn, okay? In general, Christians believe that it's wrong to terminate a pregnancy that results in the death of a child in the womb. And in that belief, in that truth, we engage others who believe just the opposite. Those who believe that there's nothing wrong with taking the life of a child in the mother's womb. So here's the question. How can different people come to such different conclusions as to what defines truth? One believes abortion is evil. The other believes abor- abortion is moral. And, and here's the reason. Here's, here's what's happened. Any evil, any sin, anything that comes against godliness, contrary to the word of God, anything that comes against uh, righteousness, holiness, all started with a battle. It all started with a a fight against truth, against God's truth. Any person who calls good evil and evil good has some at some point fought a battle in the mind. You see, there's a, there's a common grace given to all men, even unbelievers, that allows them to understand certain truths about God. And, and we've talked about these before. But for the sake of illustration, I just want to go through them quickly again. You, you have the law of God that's written on men's hearts. Okay? Even unbelievers, there's a sense of right and wrong. It's the moral God of, uh, written on their hearts that gives them a conscience. Again, you can go into the, the outback of, of wherever, and you'll see this system of they just know. It's innate. It's, it's a gift of God. You've also got creation. You can look at the moon, the stars. There's this evidence of a Creator. If you have something that's, that's been designed so magnificently, then there must be a designer. And then you've also got eternity has been placed in the hearts of men. It's another common grace that God gives all men. In other words, we know that there's more to this life. There's evidence of life hereafter. And again, that's a, that's a blessing because, because we know that there's more. We know that it, innately we just know that there's more than, than what's here. And these truths are designed, in in one sense, that people would respond and seek out this truth giver. Seek more light. Worship the true God, this designer, this one who created all this. But in opposition to that, there's someone called the great deceiver, and he has many titles. He's called the evil one, the father of lies. But there's one title in particular that should catch our attention especially when it comes to these ideologies and these opinions contrary to God's truth. The very next chapter, again, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes the evil one, gives him another title, as an angel of light. Now imagine, again, we're talking about context of these fortresses that we're building in our mind and these different opinions. Imagine how deceptive an angel of light can be. We have the truth of God's word about everything I just said. But angel light, he comes along and he could convince people that this law of God, this, this moral conscious struggle going on written on the heart really has nothing to do with God. It's actually more about the goodness of man. It comes from our inherent self-righteousness. This angel of light could convince people that the moon and stars really don't need a creator. In fact, man doesn't need a creator. Because we've been going through years and years of this evolutionary process. Eternity? Yeah, he could convince people that, yeah, there may be an eternity, but everyone goes to a better place. If he can't shake the guilt of their sin, perhaps he can relieve it, convince others that praying five times a day or washing the Genghis River will absolve them of their guilt. Now, those are your, your big picture issues. But again, the scripture says that we're not um, ignorant to the s- schemes of Satan. It, whether it's the big, the big things like that or things that we deal with every day. So that takes us back to the abortionist. And again, this is, can be applied to any battle for truth. He convinces them that the child in the womb really isn't a child. Perhaps it's just a clump of cells. Convinces them that actually they're more like God more righteous about boarding the baby, not bringing that child into this world. And if there's one thing that, that I would ask you to leave with this morning, out of everything that's been said, because I think this one thing that I'm about to say is what will help us to understand most that we have to use the weapons that God has provided. When you're speaking to anyone about truth, God in general, creation, morality, abortion, the gospel. The truth that you're shining into that darkness, into their darkness, in the darkest, darkened hearts, their darkened minds, it's causing them to retreat back into those fortresses. It's causing them to retreat back to those opinions and those arguments that Paul says must be destroyed if truth is going to prevail in their lives. And when you look at things like that, when you're witnessing or you have a family member or somebody that needs to come to Christ, when you look at things in that, those lives, I mean, you're, you're talking about getting into a place that you can't reach. Fruits of the flesh, weapons of the flesh has no way to get into the heart and the minds in that sense. So when you talk to somebody and you start hearing, well, you believe this and here's what I believe, they're, they are operating, they are being defensive from that place in their mind that they've built. It's contrary to the Word of God, these opinions, these ideologies. And that's what this whole battle that Paul is speaking about in this scripture. His is the context of the true gospel. But it's the same practice, same scheme of Satan on any element of truth that comes under of the gospel. And this battle takes place in the mind. It's always over this one question, what is truth? John 17, 17, Jesus was praying to the Father on behalf of the disciples And he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your your word is truth. This is the same truth that Paul tells us in verse 5, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I don't think there's a better illustration of taking every thought captive to obedience to God than the victory won by Christ himself in the wilderness. Think about this. He was assaulted by Satan himself with Satan's ideologies, with Satan's opinions, with things that were contrary to the Word of God. Three times this happened, and three times Christ took these thoughts captive to truth. There was no argument. There was no engagement with Satan like Eve did in the garden. He simply said, it is written. It is written. It is written. Powerful, powerful weapon of God. That has divine power. So why would Jesus go through this? There was no chance, wasn't even possible for him to be overtaken by Satan or to be deceived by Satan. Jesus did this as an example for us, how to take every thought, every temptation, every lie, every accusation, take it captive to truth that sets us free. One of the greatest weapons that a Christian can use, these spiritual weapons, are those three words. It is written. It is written. It is written. There's no defense against it is written. You'll notice that Satan had to to leave. Scripture also tells us to resist the devil, stand firm, resist him, and he will leave. It's only by using the armor, offensive, and defensive weapons of the Lord. But here's the catch. You have to know what is written. Any battle you face as a Christian, it may require other spiritual weapons, but it will always demand what is written. And when we think about those thoughts, and a lot of times this scripture is not the big picture that we're looking about of the warfare. But you could do sermon after sermon just on that thought of taking everything captive to the obedience of Christ. And again, imagine Paul talks about renewing the mind with truth every day. And that's why we have to stay in Scripture. If we don't stay in Scripture, if we don't know what is written, we're opening ourselves up to the lies of Satan. How many people have been deceived, shipwrecked their faith, simply because they didn't know the truth? Look how crafty Satan is all through the Scripture, how he takes just a little twist or a little turn of the truth and makes it sound so appealing. And again, an angel of light? And that's why you have preachers throughout this country, throughout this world, that can convince people sitting in the pew. They're not Bereans like Paul spoke about who go back and check the Scripture. No, they take him for his word, just yesterday i seen a uh, a video on the news it's about a baptist church actually southern baptist 60 year old preacher somewhat railing against conservative christianity because they have decided to allow same-sex marriage couples into their into their church and regardless of the conservative beliefs that we've always had for all these years that we stand on the word of god and this is our understanding. And it wasn't just that, that they were, were welcome. I mean, we would say anyone is welcome. But to be a member of the church, to say you're a follower of Christ, you have to be repentant. You have to in that sense. But yet they've decided that, no, our membership, it doesn't matter. And it was all done in the name of love. That's probably one of the, the greatest deception is, is what is love. You see, the world has redefined it of what love is. You love people in their sin, naturally, in that one sense. But now we're in a society that says to have any contradicting um, truth or opinion or whatever against people's sin, then you're a bigot. That That is all designed by the evil one. And we could easily throw stones. Get on Facebook, throw stones. And I'm not saying that we still don't stand for truth even from a, from a public forum like that. But again, is, is it filled with truth? Is it filled with grace? Is it filled with kindness? But we still have to take that stand that no, this is truth. It is. It is written. It's written. And somehow, so that pastor has lost his way on what is written. He somehow started using fleshly weapons, and it just doesn't work—not for the Christian. So, let, so let me wrap this up. And again, you. This has just been kind of a broad overview. With this terminology, the spiritual war about battles, being a soldier, weapons of divine power, taking every thought captive to to Christ, and it can be a built a bit overwhelming. I think Pastor Darren could probably preach three years on this subject. I think if you took all these scriptures, put them together, there's at least as many as the book of Mark. (laughs) He'll consider it. But again, You look at the warfare, you look at all the terminology in scriptures, and when you actually start looking for it, there's more in there than what we often realize about this warfare, about this this life of the Christian. But anyway, with all that broad overview, I hope you leave with at least these three convictions. First of all, is understand that you're in a battle and the nature of that battle. The, The Christian life is not child's play. Jesus says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And you know what? That's almost become cliche with us because we hear it so much. But, I mean, really think about that. Satan would just soon kill you as look at you this morning. He would just soon obliterate every Christian. And he has those kind of battles going on across the world even now and persecution and such. Our battle is against him, not flesh and blood. Now, he displays himself in flesh and blood. I'm not talking about accountability for people who do evil. But it's against him. That's why we have to fight this war the way the Lord says. And we don't want to come to the end of our life and realize that we've lived life on the wrong battlefield, fighting the wrong battles, using the wrong weapons as a Christian. I mean, how tragic would that be? And perhaps someone's listening this morning, online or elsewhere, you say, you know, I truly don't understand. Not only do I. Not understand this warfare. I, I don't really understand these ideologies, opinions, and all that you're talking about. What's even more tragic is to come to the end of your life and realize not only were you not on God's battlefield or his army, but that you were in the wrong army. The, the scripture clearly says that there's no neutrality. Many people think, well, you know what, I may not be the most religious. I but I really don't care. I do my own thing. The scripture says that you have to choose this day whom you will serve because by default, if you're not following Christ, if you're not serving him, by default, probably one of the most eye scriptures I ever read years ago was that you're either you have God himself as your father or Satan as your father in the spiritual sense. But he says, and perhaps you've retreated to these beliefs that you have, Christ isn't real, or perhaps you have atheistic views, or you believe Christians are this and that. It's because you've created these ideologies and opinions contrary to the Word of God. And here's what I would encourage you to do, is just simply read what is written. If you have a Bible, or if you can obtain a Bible, just be honest with yourself for a minute. Say, where did I get these ideologies? Where did I get these opinions? Perhaps from friends, perhaps co-workers. I'm staking my eternity on these opinions, on these ideologies. So let me encourage you just to read what is written, even for 30 days. Open up the book of John and say, I'm going to read what is written and see what the Lord will do and be open to to truth. Come out of that retreat spot that you have in your mind that you're completely shut off. You're completely on the defense of anything that has to do with Christianity or, or Christians and just put your guard down for just a moment and say, Lord, if, if you are real, I'm going to read what is written, and you speak to me. That's my encouragement to you this morning, because the Lord says if you will come to him in repentance and faith, he will, he will obliterate those false notions. He will reveal himself in glory and salvation, and he will give you a new life. He will give you hope and peace for all of eternity. So understand the battle, the nature of the battle. Number two, engage the battle, be a faithful soldier. I think, I mean, I get it. It's so much easier to stand on the sidelines and let the battle rage. Okay? Spiritual warfare is almost non existent from the spectator seats. Because think about it, I mean, from those seats, we can we can still do things. I mean, we can curse the darkness, we can cheer others on. But we can't walk in victory for battles we don't fight. It's just not possible. We want to be able to say with Paul, as Paul said, he says, I've finished the fight, I've kept the faith. And Paul wasn't a street fighter. He wasn't an MMA cage fighter. Paul was a soldier in the Lord's army. And he refers to it as a fight. He says, I have finished the fight. In other words, he has finished his life. and He's kept the faith. And then the third thing, and lastly, is the war itself has already been won. And that can sometimes be confusing because we're talking so much today about being engaged and suffering hardship and different things. But we have to understand that the base foundation is that we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We're fighting from what Christ has already done on the cross. The spiritual battlefield was never designed to see who wins. That was, that was already determined on the, cro- on the cross. The, the spiritual battlefield has been designed for us to make us more like Christ, to display his glory, to display his grace, to display his mercy. And there's going to be that day when he gathers his bride after these battles are over and that we're all going to live with him in victory. The scripture I would leave with you this morning is out of Deuteronomy 20. Verse 4, it says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it's always that. Let's pray. Well, Father, I just thank you, God, for being the king that you are. God, I pray that you would give us strength, you would give us courage, and Lord, most of all, that you would give us that hope and that rest and that faith in you. Lord, you refer to us as sheep. You refer to us as soldiers, but Lord, even in that soldier in that in that soldier capacity, we are still sheep. You give us times of refreshment, and you give us times of rest, and your staff and your rod. And even as a even as a soldier, we still have all the other promises um, of the Scripture that you go before us, that you're with us. Constant, you tell us, do not fear, do not fear. And it's always in the context of why, and that's because you say that you're with us. So, Lord, may we take that away this morning, that there are battles to be fought, that we are fighting from victory and not for victory, because you truly have won those battles, and you've won the war already. God, thank you so much. It's in your name we pray, amen.
0: For we are the church to...